Hello, listeners. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Raw Talk, where scientists talk and we listen. You've made it to episode 15, and I'm super thrilled to present this month's theme, Foundational Science. Here at Raw Talk, we celebrate the talented people behind the latest scientific discoveries. I think I speak for the rest of the team as well in saying that these conversations give us a deeper sense of appreciation for all the research that surrounds us. But most importantly, they tell the story of how science is actually done and the paths our incredible guests have taken to make it. Foundational research is built on the same principle. It's to deepen our understanding of the basic mysteries of life first before starting to evaluate its impact. On this episode, we sat down with Dr. Helen McNeil, senior scientist at the Lunenfeld Tannenbaum Research Institute, as well as professor of molecular genetics at the University of Toronto. Fresh off a world tour, Helen joined us to recount her time in graduate school in the Bay Area and what it was like coming from a liberal arts background. We also talk about the gene discovery that set the stage for setting up her own lab in the UK and then Toronto, and the process of naming genes in the fruit fly. Whoever said scientists weren't creative should think again. The big question in Helen's lab is understanding how you generate organization from disorganization. Using a gamut of molecular genetic techniques and the powerful fruit fly, she focuses on one protein that's considered between flies, mice, and people, with the hopes of figuring out how normal growth control is regulated and dysregulated in cancer and cystic kidney disease. If you like what you hear, be generous with the love. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram and Twitter, and share our posts. Done with the plug. Enjoy the show. What are you working on for the rest of the day? Um, talk. I'm beginning this. Yeah. <laughs> um, talking to students in my lab about you know their projects and yeah. where they're going. How often do you meet with your students? Depends on the student and the time. You know, I mean, I try to, uh, I have theoretically an open door policy, but not everyone, not everyone uh, avails themselves of that. So then sometimes I, I go out and say, hey, do you want to talk to me? Ideally, you know, every week, probably. And you have regular lab meetings as well? Or? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Lab meetings every week. And then, and then when somebody presents at lab meeting, I always meet with them afterwards. And then, you know, try to meet with everybody. But I mean, it depends, postdocs, students, if the project's getting to an exciting writing time or if the project's having problems more frequently. Other times, I'm like, hey, do you want to talk? And they're like, no, not right now. <laughs> so, oh, But it is really cool that your office is directly connected to your lab. Yeah, I, I mean, there's that. a single dork. I totally love it. that. I think that that is really, I mean, some people may not, you may have had a hard time finding me because I'm buried inside, but it's definitely good because that way somebody can just pop their head in and ask a quick question. While and, they're still running a gel or PCR It just reduces or the like activation that. energy, really. It's just, you know, or if you walk out, you know, you can see someone instantly and go, hey, how's it going? Rather than it being formal. So, yeah. It, it has some disadvantages in terms of ease of access for the rest of the world. But in terms of my interactions with the lab, it's great. This may be the first supervisor's office that I've seen that actually is fully equipped with a couch. <laughs> Do the students ever make use of that when I they're offer stressed to them out? Or? or especially pregnant students. I'm always like, you know, I have given the uh, the key <laughs> to my lab. Actually, they have it out there anyway. But yeah, I, I don't think they use it all the time, but it's there if they need it. And I certainly take advantage of it all the time. So welcoming. So if everyone's having a bad day, just take a seat. Let's talk. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. And it's like a psychiatry session back. So, well, it also, you know, you can sit, if you're having like a discussion with a bunch of people, you know, three or four, depending on their width, three or four people can sit on that couch at once. And so you can really have a bunch of people talking at one time. And that's good. Yeah. 
So when last we spoke, you were about to embark on a world tour of sorts. Oh, yeah, I did. Yeah. I think you, uh, you, you said you were going to Asia and you were going to go to Europe as well. Right. I guess we, I saw you guys, what, three or four weeks ago? Uh, something like that. I feel like right. it, was, it was back in August. Right. So at the end of September, I, I probably were uh, at the end of September, I took off for Tokyo and then I was in Kyoto and then I was in Seoul in Daejeon. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right in Korea. And then fr I flew straight from there to Brussels for uh, an EU grant panel. And then uh, I came back for five days and then I flew back to Dresden for a meeting. How was that? That was very fun. Great science. Good people. You know, and then the meetings I was at the meeting I was on in Dresden was was a really cool meeting. It was uh, 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 it was something. I think the title was something like Morphogenesis, Metabolism, and, and Mechanics. And the three every, M's. <laughs> and every other talk was um, from a physicist or a biologist. Mm -hmm. So it was really an exciting sort of you know it was more of a workshop. I think there, you know, it was, but yeah, they would have two talks, biologist and a physicist, and then really both of them were trying to reach across the. The Great Divide. It was exciting. Same topic or general topic? Or? So lots of different things. I mean, there are things about, you know, Drosophila, um, ventral furrow formation, you know, mouse, everything, tissue culture, all sorts of different things, and always trying to figure out if we can find underlying um, themes and, and ways of describing um, these morphogenesis movements through, through these sort of more, less conventional ways of thinking about it. I, I think one of the perks of being a grad student is all the travels. Absolutely, yeah. Absolutely. It's so, fascinating, yeah. Tell us mm -hmm. about your time in graduate school. My time in graduate school, yeah. right? It was fantastic. Um, so I was at Stanford, and I was in a, a big lab that focused on understanding how sort of mammalian tissue culture cell polarity uh, is established. And, you know, we were all... Uh, excited about a lot of the same things, but we're approaching it from lots of different ways. It was a very international group of people. And Stanford has a sort of a really great sort of work hard, play hard attitude. And it was just, you know, really exciting. I mean, I just delved into the science, but you also had time to, you know, have fun and uh, get into hiking and skiing. And yeah, it was all great. I would did, totally do it again. Totally recommend it for anyone. How, how did you choose your supervisor? Because um, now I know, you know, it's really easy for students to go online and say, oh, peruse a bunch of different profiles and who's studying what and then send emails. But I imagine it wasn't quite the same back then. Well, you still you still <laughs> you still could find out what people were doing. But I think um, I actually had started thinking I was going to do other stuff. And then I, I met this guy, James Nelson, and he was doing sort of a seminar course. And he was just so enthused about his science and so knowledgeable about it and you know it was it was captivating so that just uh, I actually had already done a several rotations and I just thought wow this is you know I love this it was hard uh, there was a lot of really interesting things to do but that just really caught my imagination so you were always interested in developmental biology <clears throat> I've always been interested <laughs> people used to make fun of me when I said I've always been interested in cell polarity and cell organization not when I was seven <laughs> not when I was seven but uh, scientifically you know ever since I've started really being interested in biology um, which you know came only really later uh, but ever since then, I'm fascinated by how, how do you generate organization from lack of organization? Maybe you look at my office, you can see why I would think that. <laughs> Not very organized here. Uh, got yeah. nice little boxes. We got a lot of nice little boxes with all the different things that we're working on, which is pretty diverse. Yeah. Yes. And your undergrad was uh, also at Stanford? or No, I was at Ramapo College, and I started as a history philosophy major. Interesting. And, yeah. 
I thought that was fun. And then I, I took some psychology courses and I'm like, oh, that's cool. I'll do that. <laughs> and I only took, got into science because I took a required science course for non-science majors. And then I thought that was beautiful. And then, you know, I started working on that. So I kind of came to it like less, th more than halfway through undergrad, but a summer taking organic chem one and two, you know, trying to make up all your requirements. But And that's really you know. interesting, too, because coming from a liberal arts background, mm -hmm. oh, I'm just wondering, what, what was it that spoke to you in so that class? It was just the beauty of biology. It was, it was you know, the, the person who taught it was a marine biologist and, you know, diatoms and dinoflagellates. And, you know, you just really kept feeling, you know, this wonderful feeling is as you go deeper and deeper in the microscope, you can see more and more of the organization. And, you know, it just caught me. And you got into biology, never looked back. Yeah, I love it. I mean, I think, you know, there's a lot of interesting things, but yeah, I have a lot of fun and I find it pretty satisfying so, so asking these questions. What was your uh, thesis uh, project on that state? Um, my thesis project was on E. coherent, which is a cell adhesion molecule. Um, it was also called Uvamorulin at that stage. And, it's um, not called that anymore? It's not. We lost the naming more. Um, and uh, <clears throat> yeah, so I worked on basically how, I guess my big thing as a grad student was when you express e coherent into cells that were fibroblastic, you could they could induce cell polarity, and that was like, pretty cool. And I really guess. quick definition: What is cell polarity? Uh, cell polarity is just basically how you take something. If you think of like an amoeba, right? There's no organization. Every side of it is at least superficially similar to the others. And then when cells become polarized, they make one surface different than another. So if you have your entire body is lined with epithelia and they need to be different on one side versus the other in, in order to you know, properly process virtually everything. And so it's a really big question. How do they become organized that way? How do they become polarized? I don't think a lot of people uh, actually think about and appreciate that tissues and, and, and organ systems sort of intuitively, well, not intuitively, but somehow know how to arrange themselves in three-dimensional space. Yeah, no, I think that's a super fascinating thing that's really come out in, in the last few years is how sort of tissues can self-organize. I think there's been a lot of beautiful work from a lot of labs showing that, you know, you can make mini brains or mini eyes just from cells that, that through natural processes start, become polarized in a single way and then become polarized as a group of cells. And that's another thing maybe you're leading to that my lab is really interested in is how tissues become organized. And there's actually, there's a layer of, of uh, gene network or protein interactions that regulate that first step of making one side of a cell different than another. And then there's another group of genes known as the planar polarity genes or tissue polarity genes, which are used to help cells organize in a, in a larger thing, like how do you make a kidney or how do you make a heart organized in, in a different axes. So when you finished your, your PhD at Stanford, uh, was the postdoc sort of the next natural transition for you? It was. Definitely. Yeah. There was no um, question well, about I it? I sort of felt like this has been a lot of fun and I, I was lucky things worked out. And then I sort of felt, well, it's... Keep on doing it as long as it's fun. And so, uh, yeah, I, I was excited about it. And I, um, yeah. You, uh, you continue to work on cell polarity? So what happened was I was married. My husband didn't, didn't want to move out of the Bay Area for a while. So I did a postdoc at Stanford, but I changed fields. I went from mammalian tissue culture to using genetics and Drosophila, the fruit fly, as a model. And actually, I went to start to work on biochemistry of cell signaling. Um, and then I got scooped, and I got pregnant, and I had to look for a new project. And then I, um, I ended up discovering a gene that was involved in uh, tissue organization in the fly eye, and, and that is involved in planar polarity, and that sort of set the stage for you know, when I eventually set up my own lab and, and years since. And that's, that's the fat gene? Uh, no, the, well, no, it was mirror. 
Oh, so mirror. mirror. So mirror is a transcription factor we found that was expressed in half the fly eye and helped divide it into mirror image planes of symmetry. So it's, you know, the name mirror was both the description of the organization and also the mutant phenotype gives you mirror image organization. So, so that's why we called it that. I was just going to ask that. How, how did <laughs> so these names yeah, come name, about? Names, names. There's a there's some cool podcasts about fly names where they come up. You you know you spend a lot of time you know throwing names back and forth and and trying to think of think about that one. That particular one, I was actually talking to Matt Scott who had a lab upstairs from us, and I was showing him my pictures, and he's like, "Oh, that mirror image polarity," and somehow that name you know evolved and it stuck. Um, yeah. So then once you came up with that name, how do you, I mean, now we're in the next generation sequencing era where the genes are pretty much known and they've been named yeah, a lot of their functions words. aren't now. That's true. But, you know? but the, but the and names. And that's the beauty of those names, right? Is that like mirror, it, it not only, you know, it gives you an insight into its normal function and its mutant function. And I think that helps you think about things when you can reflect on a name rather than you know, CG9276 or, you know, um, yeah. or, you know, all so the different the name, ones. So the name changes once you identify its function. So in Drosophila, so there's a CG na number, which is basically give it a genomics number, which is, you know, a sort of a, a genomic identifier. But then as Drosophila people in particular, you know, you, uh, you, as you discover what the gene function is, you have the ability, at least in our field, to name the gene. And that's quite a lot of fun. People in my lab, there's a couple of genes we're working on that there's, you know, things on the board about, oh, you know, here's different names and competitions about how to, you know, how you're going to name them. So, yeah, that's, you know, it's fun. And I also think it helps you sort of, you know, it's it's fun to personalize it and, and really sort of, um, you know, this is the thing I'm really interested in. I'm naming this and I'm I'm working on it. So that was a pretty massive breakthrough in your postdoc. It was cool and massive. I don't know, but it was definitely a big step. Well, discovered a gene. I mean, <laughs> well, Same with it, humility. no, no. I mean, I just yeah, it was fun. It was cool. You know, it made a little bit of a mark. Yeah. And you knew at that point, I I want to become a supervisor. I want to. Oh, I I think I kind of knew before that. Yeah. Right. I just didn't know. I mean, I knew it was. It looked like a lot of fun. I just remember as a grad student when my my PhD advisor came in, James Nelson, and he sort of, you know all these new ideas would be coming in. And, you know, it's really fun to do science, right, at every level, at least I think it is. And, uh, but, you know, the advantage of a supervisor is, a PhD supervisor or a lab supervisor is you, you know, there's a lot of ideas that are bubbling all the time. And, you know, you can only work on so many one person. So that's fun, right? Did you and James ever clash on that, on, on priorities of projects or, you know, uh, uh, dissenting opinions on... on um... Well, we certainly disagreed on things. Sometimes that clash might be a little strong. Um, you know, we had some... You know, heated discussions about things. That was fun, but it was never really a clash, I don't yeah, think. Sure. Maybe maybe the only clash was when he was trying to get me focused on like finishing one project with him rather than going <laughs> on to the next cool idea, you know. You took that discovery, the mirror discovery, and yeah. then you went out to London. Right, set up my lab in London, and we started doing genetic screens, looking for things that had the mirror phenotype, and you brought up fat before, yeah. one of you two did. Um, and... Uh, uh, we, we, other people more or less at the same time were rediscovering this fat gene, which had been uh, really discovered, you know, in the early days of Drosophila, in the early 1900s. Um, but we, we discovered it in a, in a planar polarity screen and, you know, and it also has growth effects and it fascinated me how this one gene regulated these two different processes and tissue organization. So yeah, that's been a huge focus in my lab ever since. How much time did you spend in London? Uh, I think I was there for six years. And this was in, in a hospital or a university? Uh, so a research institute. Mm -hmm. So um, it was. Uh, so I had a, a faculty position at University College of London, but the the research institute was like right in the center of London, 
um, near the Royal, you know, the Royal College, near the um, Covent Garden, like a really exciting area to be, and great science. You went from one uh, metropolitan area, the yeah. Bay Area, to, to another. Yeah, I How actually was, was born in Manhattan. So. Oh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, it's it's you know, there's a lot of good things about fun sure. cities, and Toronto's a great city. Yeah. I was gonna say you got a thing for metropolitan cities because now you're in Toronto, and it's a great city. Yeah. Yeah. So what what influenced you to come to Toronto after being in London? I guess it's a it's a really good place. I mean, the Lindenfeld is great science. Toronto is great science, and then also it's sort of uh, easier to get a for me anyway. Like I had a little kid in London, and you know, <clears throat> big commutes, and so Toronto was just a bit easier. Also, to have a good life work balance. Um, so great science, nice people in the city, good work life balance. You know, was there any particular research? And my that husband you were also to? was like looking for job. You know, we we went together. He was in industry and. Um, he was working for GlaxoSmithKline out here, so we, or we, you know, we looked together. Is he still in industry right now? Or no, he's not. No, no, he, uh, they closed research where he. <laughs> so that right. was that was a little complicated. But anyway, that's beyond the scope right, of this right, conversation. Right, right. <laughs> but it's it's interesting because you you opened up a lab. Yes. Yes. So what was it like to close it and to open up a new one? And did you take any researchers or scientists that you had or students you had? Yeah, I was really lucky. It? it was a really hard decision because I had a really you know, great group there. And it was really hard to make the decision that I might have to leave them behind, right? Because you'd never know if they're going to come with you. But I was quite lucky in that, you know, quite a few people came with me, which was really great for continuity. Almost everyone, except two students who were very close to finishing. And then I would, fl I flew back and forth. And then, you know, we would do joint group meetings with, you know, Skype across the way. Um, and so it kind of worked out, you know, it was a little, it was a tough year, but, you know, it, it worked. So tell us about some of the big problems, the big questions in your lab right now. I mean, obviously, still everything is under the theme of cell polarity and organization and development but, and growth and growth, right? Uh, right. But but specifically, what uh, what kind of questions are you looking at? So um, so fat is a this fat coherent is huge protein, five hundred sixty kd, thirty four coherent repeats, really conserved at least in its general structure to between flies and people and mice. And so, you know, we're trying to figure out, I mean, one of the big questions is why is it so big, right? This protein is, is enormous. So e-coherent, which is your normal cell adhesion molecule, you know, um, is, you know, tiny compared to it. So why do you need such a big protein to be so conserved in the extracellular domain? And why are these different regions con conserved? So we're do using a lot of CRISPR right now, trying to dissect both the intracellular domain and, and eventually, the extracellular domain. That's a big question. And we hope by using CRISPR studies, we'll be able to figure out what, how it regulates growth and tissue organization, you know, first of all, separately, and then how they integrate. How does it regulate gene expression is really a big um, avenue that we're going into. Um, and then, you know, does it regulate cancer in people? And, you know, lots of, you know, there's so many questions that come out of a conserved protein that controls tissue organization and growth. And we're interested in all of them, really. And the jump to cancer is almost intuitive because cancer is a state where there is no organization of cells. Mm -hmm. and, and excessive proliferation too, right? Right. So, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, we're, we, we in Drosophila, we and others showed that fat regulates a conserved uh, pathway, that's a kinase pathway that's involved in, in cancer. And so, you know, we're trying to figure out how that works in both systems using the strengths of both systems, the mouse, the fly, and tissue culture. Hey everyone, this is Grace, and I'm excited to bring you our first Journal Club segment, where we'll take a closer look at an aspect of a guest research and its impact in everyday life. 
Today I'm going to highlight Dr. McNeil's work on the fat gene and how her lab's discoveries using Drosophila mice have implications for understanding and fighting cancer in humans. As we've heard, fat is a large calcium-dependent cell adhesion molecule that Dr. McNeil's lab found to regulate the hippokinase pathway. Through this pathway, it affects growth and an important type of tissue organization called planar polarity that relates to the coordinated alignment of cells. So although Dr. McNeil uses animal models, the hippo pathway is highly conserved in humans. Fat4 is the closest homolog to what we have, and its dysfunction has been associated with diseases from neural tube closure to cystic kidney disease. It also turns out that Fat4 is extremely relevant to understanding and potentially preventing cancer, which makes sense, considering its involvement in the regulation of cell proliferation, growth, and apoptosis. Studies looking into this, such as ones on breast cancer, have found that suppressing expression of the Fat4 gene can induce tumor growth, and that this exact Fat4 loss of function is found in many cancerous tumor cell lines. Malfunction is also associated with reduced cell adhesion, as well as promotion of cell migration and invasion of cancerous cells. Silencing of Fat4 and tumor growth is caused by genetic mutations and epigenetic changes relating to hypermethylation of Fat4, specifically in the promoter region, to prevent expression. A large study looking at the evolution of cancer genomes implicated Fat4 as one of six genes with overall higher genetic mutation densities and methylation relating to suppression in 39% of tumors. These findings indicate that Fat4 may be useful as a tumor suppressor gene and an emerging therapeutic target for fighting cancer. As a potential step leading to cancer, we can integrate this knowledge into treating affected cells or identifying types of cancer. However, for this we need to better understand how Fat4 works and its role in cellular function, both in the context of cancer and outside of it. For healthy tissue organization in multicellular organisms, both growth and cell differentiation need to be precisely integrated. Although we have seen a lot of progress in research regarding cell specialization in stem cells, there's a lag in understanding how the timing of growth patterns is regulated. Dr. McNeil's essential work on Fat4 and the HIPAA pathway revealed new functions and mechanisms that work to bridge this gap. Her great research is a clear example of the importance and impact of foundational research and down-the-line life-changing discoveries. Now that we've taken this closer look, back to the podcast. Just going back to my undergraduate days, just uh, intro to cell biology, I remember myself and other students being inundated with these huge pictures of just pathways. You know, yeah, like protein, biochemistry right, pathways. Right, this binds yeah. to this, and then that activates yeah. that, yeah, and then that sets up this cascade. Yeah. So how, how do you actually, what kind of techniques would you use to probe those those pathways and figure out what is actually connecting to what and how, what, what the nature of the interactions is? Yeah, we use you know, a lot of techniques. I mean, we, we collaborate with people like Anne Claude Gingras upstairs, she does a lot of proteomics, bio-ID, so trying to understand the interaction spheres. We do genetic screens, trying to understand how the proteins genetically interact. And then again, you know, then we try to make very targeted mutations or with CRISPR mostly um, to, to, to do sort of, to really test, you know, because the problem is, you know, you can find a protein binds another protein. Does it bind it? Does that, does that bind the interaction of any relevance? If it does, does it have relevance in in every tissue, and so you really have to kind of go into a nano, like the, that's why we use fruit flies, Drosophila, so much, is that gives us a really powerful way of testing very critically in vivo if this in, these interactions we find through other ways really are important to the function of the protein. And then you take that to your nose? Ideally, yeah, that's a much slower step, but yes, yeah, so that's sometimes we do. Yeah, not every time. I, I think for we have mouses, a lot more difficult in many different ways, a lot more expensive, a lot slower. So so for a few things, we, we go to the mouse, but we don't do everything in the mouse. Mo the fly is a powerhouse for that. So 
What kind of tissues or organs are you really interested in identifying? In the, in the mouse, you mean? In Where do we mouse, study? Yeah. Um, I'm super fascinated by <clears throat> the kidney. So we had shown, so fat, Drosophila fats, closest homologous fat four. We had made a knockout mouse for fat four, and we found that it had cystic kidney disease, you know, and then that focused our interest on the kidney. And then when we looked at the hippo pathway, which is the growth control pathway c controls, you know, we've started using, you know, very fine scale overexpression at loss of function, mosaic analysis in the mouse kidney, and trying to understand how these pathways control uh, really basic developmental structures like how a kidney tubule branches. Kidney is a really beautifully branched system, and, you know, there's a lot known about it, but there's also a lot that's not known about it, and we've discovered that fat and the hippo pathway have important roles in it, and that's a big area for research right now. The hippo pathway. Hippo pathway, what yeah. <laughs> Good Drosophila names, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> what I think uh, is hippopotamus. It, it looks fat, right? Or whatever. <laughs> so there's a kind of so fat at some level controls it, though we still don't fully understand. And it, um, and then there's a kinase. There's a little bit in between, but I'll skip it for this podcast. Then there's a kinase which is called warts. It's called warts because it gives these overgrowths in flies. And so you've got the hippokinase, you've got the warts kinase, and then you've got a transcriptional regulator called Yorkie. And so again, Drosophila names, it's called Yorkie because mutations in it um, give undergrowth because it's negatively regulated by the pathway. But it, you know, York, it was called Yorkie because York, at least it says in the paper <laughs> that Yorkie is the, you know, the world's smallest dog or smallest terrier. So it, yeah. you know, you try to, you know, so you have a little fun and it also gives you some idea of what the relationships are and stuff. So you mentioned uh, uh, links to cancer and sort of making your research a little bit more translational. What What is your I'm sort of... I'm not super translational. I mean, I hope our work is, has a lot of translational implications, but we're not in my lab doing anything with drugs development or, um, you know, we, we're, we believe that if we better understand how normal growth control um, is regulated and dysregulated in, in cancers than other people who are chemists and pharmacologists. And, you know, they, they can come in and um, do that, that, that kind of work. I mean, you know, our strength, our speciality is understanding how, how the normal tissue works. How's it going? It's your field correspondent, Hilary Chan, reporting on another segment of Word on the Street where I ask U of Tears their opinions to topics related to the episode theme. This time, we are talking about foundational sciences research, sometimes called basic science research, or research that's done in the wet lab. Today, we wanted to know how much people knew about the impacts of lab-based research on medicine today, and what they believed were good justifications for doing research in foundational sciences. What are we waiting for? Let's go. Do you know of any fundamental science or basic science research discoveries that affect the way medicine is done today? So in the terms of medical treatments or the way medical practice is done? Um, well, I don't really have any specific discoveries in mind, but uh, I do know that um, any discovery, uh, small or big, or any research in general, doesn't yeah. necessarily have to be a discovery, can um, affect medicine in general or sciences in general, right. um, obviously in a positive way, um, depending on how, e what the mindset behind the discovery is and okay. where that research is going and the bigger picture of things and how you can connect that uh, tiny bit of research with um, other researchers. 
One topic that was brought up in one of my regenerative medicine mm -hmm. courses um, was the idea that you're able to take cardiomyocytes, which mm -hmm. are just the functional heart cells, mm -hmm. and being able to regenerate them for possible transplantation. And so originally it was thought that these cells were not able to divide and, um, and as a result treatments would mostly be of like surgery mm -hmm. or any sort of like drugs and so basic research in finding out that these cells can either be induced into different heart cells and, or finding certain populations of cells in the heart that could be regenerated gave um, a huge explosion in the discovery of sciences right. and treatments mm -hmm. for clinical practices and while they're still being um, sort of in the clinical phases, mm -hmm. um, they show possible insight and implications for better treatments for patients. So Galen, the anatomist, okay. uh, I don't remember the year, but like a long time <laughs> ago, he did a lot of experiments on cadavers um, and he had a lot of incorrect beliefs that were then later rectified. Mm -hmm. So he believed that like the right heart or the right side of your heart pumped like dark blood uh, mm -hmm. compared to the left side of your heart and that like spirits were picked up along vital spirits were picked mm -hmm. up along the way and that yeah. like they pumped to different places which I think was rectified by Robert Hooke but I could be mm -hmm. wrong <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah he, so he made a lot of discoveries that were not correct but he started like using cadavers to look mm -hmm. at things and the reason that it wasn't correct was because he was using observation mm -hmm. and they didn't like have a lot of technology at the time so as uh, we had like more of the scientific revolution come around, um, they were able to find out more things that were actually correct, which mm -hmm. has helped us in science today. Right, so then in the general scope of you know, doing research in the lab, then do you think it's useful to do research just for the sake of science, or do you think it must serve a greater purpose? I think it's cool to do research for the sake of science mm -hmm. because it's exciting, mm -hmm. and it also leads to problem solving that can be effective for like everything in life and like can be applied to other stuff as well mm -hmm. um, and I think like anytime that you do research for the sake of science it always ends up being useful in some aspect of life. No science is meant to be researched with just for these for the uh, you know for the curiosity. enthusiasm yeah. or curiosity obviously it does um, it does have to mm -hmm. serve a greater purpose usually uh, to um, improve or enhance management of diseases, you know, mm -hmm. whether it's neurodegenerative or, and of course, to service humanity in general, because um, mm -hmm. science wasn't made just to get that prestige of things. It really was, uh, it's an art to be enjoyed and also, you know, serve at the same time. It, it's a real foundation and a route to just understand the basic research and sciences mm -hmm. and from there only do you realize uh, certain exciting um, results or discoveries that may have been like out of accident or just mm -hmm. purely out of your interest that could spark into different questions that you can ask for later and only those questions would possibly result into different um, treatment plans for patients mm -hmm. or something like so, that. So then do, do you, would you then agree that you know while it's really important for you to be obviously interested in the science, to do the foundational science research, that it should actually really serve a greater purpose, um, which is for the end user. Would you say that's true or not true? 
Uh, I suppose it depends. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like there should be, if we're talking specifically regarding labs, right. there should be labs that are just looking at how, how, like, how does the... Um, how do sort of things work, or just out of interest on like how do things function, and only then could press perhaps other labs or researchers could take that information right. for answering other applicable questions. And so I do feel like there should be people that are studying um, certain parts of science just for the sake of interest. Just in case it helps in, someone else. In case it helps someone yeah, else. Yeah, have like a Eureka moment. Yeah. Okay, awesome. Thank you so much. Not many of us know specific scientists and the individual discoveries that contribute to medicine today. We do seem to be aware of the research trends that will continue to help medicine evolve. It's undeniable that lab research discoveries have done wonders for laying the foundation of medicine and advancing the way medicine is done everywhere. Perhaps what's most interesting is that some of us believe doing foundational science research purely for the fascination of it is enough reason to do it because of the remote possibility that it will provide inspiration for others when trying to develop treatments for patients. In the end, the thought of translating discoveries from the lab to the patient prevails, and as one of our interviewees seemed to allude to, all this research in the end should be for society to use because it's only humane and a part of who we all are. Foundational research is is our theme for the month. Oh, cool. Okay. Right. And uh, I know that a lot of students and a lot of researchers working in clinics, I mean, they're interacting directly with patients. And yes. so um, you can kind of see the impact on uh, on healthcare and, and quality of Absolutely. life right yeah. there. Really important. But yeah. they don't understand, or I guess a lot of people sort of overlook the fact that a lot of this is based on science that really does come from looking at the cells, looking at molecular interactions. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I think a lot of the time we have a tendency to just say, oh, we know everything. We know everything. And we're so far, we're so far from knowing everything. It's, it's unbelievable, right? I mean, even in Drosophila, even in tissue culture cells, there's still things, I mean, there's whole conferences all the time about new things we're discovering just about, you know, those very simple systems. So we're, we're so far from fully understanding what's you know, how that works. So, yeah, I, I, you know, I think that, you know, there's an important place for, you know, the clinicians, the, the drug developers, all the different people, and for us, you know, it all, it's, it's part of a, a, a larger effort to, to address these problems. It's team-based. It's team entirely team-based. Yes. Big teams. So <laughs> yeah. we talked to a lot of researchers who sort of mentioned the ebb and flow of, of funding, the, the funding situation. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I know just from personal experience that, like, when you're writing a grant, you sort of, you, you, you talk about the aims of your research, right? Mm-hmm. And you talk about how you're going to accomplish it. And you talk about sort of the, the foundation. I do basic science research as well. And then just toward the end, you add a paragraph, you tack on a paragraph about how this could potentially be translational and, and important to the, right. the broader society. Mm-hmm. Do you think that, well, first of all, do you agree with that? And, and uh, do you think that there are challenges to sort of obtaining funding and, and getting research going, especially <laughs> yeah. when you're doing something that is so foundational? Yeah, there's absolutely challenges that way. Yeah, for sure. Right. And there's, I mean, I think, you know, it's understandable in some ways that the public or, you know, the organizations that respond to the public feel that, you know, we want, you know, let's just put all the money into a cure right now. But, um, and that I think is reflecting sometimes in the funding system. But, you know, there's no doubt that if you, well, I I strongly believe that if you um, looked at some of the studies that were done, you know, a decade ago, where people just put the money straight into translational research and asked how much did that develop, versus you know that same amount of money into basic research. I personally 
would bet that the that the basic research um, is more than holding its own in a dollar per dollar investment. Absolutely, yeah. We also talk a lot about different techniques, and mm-hmm. obviously techniques have have come a long way. And, and techniques probably, are expensive, and they are expensive. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and and perhaps they've gotten a little bit more accessible, a little bit more affordable. Absolutely, well, yeah, for um, sure. Sequencing, for example, right? That's the cost has really dropped. Yeah. So, uh, would you what what new techniques? Well, you mentioned CRISPR, but what what other new techniques um, have you been using lately that have allowed you to sort of probe and and answer questions uh, a lot better, a lot more effectively than you could before? Well, I mean, there's always new Drosophila models and mouse models that are, you know, sophisticated and allow you single cell resolution, gene manipulation. So that's very powerful, right? Um, I guess one thing, you know, we're we're finding in our fat pathway, you know, major changes in chromatin. And so, you know, my students are, you know, doing RNA-seq of different mutants to profile them, doing a tax-seq to see how the chromatin changes in the different mutant conditions. So, you know, um, we're... When we can, we try to take advantage of the newest techniques to help us, you know, find out the imaging also, right? So imaging just improves, you know, year by year, um, better and better microscopes, super resolution microscopes. And, you know, using those, you know, in collaboration with other people like Laurence Pelletier upstairs, um, you know, we're able to, you know, literally see far more than we could before and distinguish, you know, between different models because we can see where the proteins are when we couldn't, you know, five years ago. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. When we talk about clinical researchers... The joy comes from making a discovery or a cure or treating a patient. But can you speak on the joy when you take a phenomenon and identify a mechanism? That's that's a blast, right? <laughs> and it's what like, that, what does that feel? Yeah, it's super exciting, right? You know, when you think you find there's all this jumble of information, and you know, you've got you can see piles of papers everywhere in my office, right? And you know, you're trying, you're always trying to look for the underlying simplicity the underlying theme that explains something. And when you first think you find it, I mean, you know, it's like a shiver down your spine. You're like, wow, that's so exciting. So, yeah, just the joy of figuring out really important basic mysteries of, you know, life, I guess, or cell biology, you know. Yeah, I mean, I, what can I say? It's a rush. Figuring out how something really works mm-hmm. is, at least for me and, you know, my lab, other scientists, I know that's that's a real excitement to really understand something. And then when you make a discovery like that, do you ever, do you ever want to pursue this a translational opportunity. Do you do you have? Do you find that you're having a lot more conversations? We're we're trying to push you you're into, really that pushing me into that translation. Tra- we, we don't. We're not. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's like you guys. It will benefit from both of each other, right? Because exactly. Yeah. Understanding um, the mechanisms. I'm super excited when I talk to colleagues who yeah. are more translational or or clinicians mm-hmm. who who can. I mean that that's that's very very rewarding for me when I realize. You know, that, that's something that we've been studying in Drosophila and a mouse, you know, that, that people have mutations in this protein and that, you know, our work is, is informational for, for public health. That's, that's very satisfying, right? Um, but again, I don't really, for myself, <laughs> I don't really feel like I'm, I, I think that would be a misuse of my talents. Mm-hmm. I'm not, that my, my talents are understanding how proteins work, how genes work, how, you know, deeply understanding the, the interrelationship of that, and then, but my expertise is not in developing a drug, or how is accessible is it, or how bioavailable it is, and so you know, it's to me, it would I wouldn't be the best person to do that. So no, I'm not doing that. So what what does the future <laughs> hold for you as far as uh, projects uh, looking ahead? Oh uh, well, like I said, we're continuing to um, we're, we're interested in in the uh, dis- dissecting the pathways. We're interested in the chromatin changes. We're interested. In, in finally understanding exactly how fat regulates the HIPAA pathway. And if that, you know, we're collaborating. I mean, even though I have been saying that we don't do it, we're actually collaborating with uh, people who are doing human studies that we found that, so the fat cadherin binds to a doxis cadherin. And um, there's some data from 
women with breast cancer that the the levels of these proteins could be important in um, whether there's there's relapse basically. Um, so I'm excited about finding that out. I, I, I don't know, I'm excited about a lot of things about this whole area of coordinating growth and tissue organization. Great. Well, do you, well, just final question. One, one, one thing, yeah. <laughs> concerns about the state of fund, uh, funding? Not funding, but about foundational research, because we talked about funding, ah. about interest coming from students. And I mean, you know, I, I think there's still lots of students who are interested in really basic research. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, you know, I think, you know, if you have that native curiosity and you want to go after that, I mean, uh, you know, maybe not as many students as are going into other, other fields, but... Um, you know, so far, I've always found students are interested. So I don't know. If it's a rather small base, yeah. I guess. But yeah, we're both we both do basic science research projects. But you know, oftentimes we find when well, we meet our colleagues, are like, oh, I don't really care about that. Yeah, that's really sad, isn't it? Yeah, it's 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 frustrating when that happens, right? Because you you really want to say, look, this is super important, and you should be paying attention. Where do you think your insights come from? Right, they come straight from the lab, kind of thing. You would say to a student, right? Someone says they're working on something super clinical. Right. And then they're not so super interested in the foundation. And you're saying like, well, where, you know, how do you think? Where do you think that came from? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think that, yeah, to, it shows some naivete to think that we figured it all out. Right. So, uh, you know, maybe some students in, in some other fields just don't even realize, you know, they, they look at the sort of textbook and said, oh, you know, this pathway has been shown to regulate something. And they don't realize how many questions are, are still left to answer, are really important questions. And if we just apply that model that's in a textbook to a patient, you know, we would, there's a very good chance that we'd hurt the patient instead of help them. So, little uh, existential question that you kind of touched upon now that there's always going to be questions. Do you, do you think we'll ever figure everything out? I mean, no. hundred, two, what about, <laughs> always, you know, in three, four hundred years? It'll become years, a different I mean, thing, right? I mean, it'll just become larger questions, questions about the interrelationship of things, questions about, you know, maybe maybe we'll figure out basic physiology, but like how the brain really works or how, you know, there's a lot of biology questions that are that are going to be there for us, at least as far as I can see in the future. And it seems like there's always game changers every, every couple yeah, of years, right? that's why it's so exciting. Well, I think that's uh, pretty much it. Any yeah. last comments? Thank you so much for giving us your insights. Thank you. Thank you for, for taking the time to talk to me. It was a pleasure. Raw Talk is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Science at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, the Faculty of Medicine, or the University. To learn more about the show, visit our website at rawtalkpodcast.com and stay up to date by following us on Facebook and Instagram at Raw Talk Podcast. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and rate us five stars. Until next time, keep it raw. How do you generate organization from lack of organization? Maybe you look at my office, you can see why I would think that. <laughs> <laughs>